different ways people view what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live the Christian life after initial conversion. Now, I'd like you to direct your attention to chapter 2, in beginning in verse number 36 through verse 47. And I'll read that this morning. Verse 36 says, Therefore, chapter 2 of Acts, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received the word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they, were, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, two reasons why the truly regenerate believer is different is because from this passage of Scripture, his heart has been changed, and the Holy Spirit now lives in his heart. Without these two things that has happened to a person from that time on, it all falls short of what real conversion is. So with those two things in mind, there are some different ways people view what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live the Christian life after initial conversion. For example, some think that the Christian life is almost exclusively an experimental thing so that they're always looking for an emotional experience in which they want to feel everything and seek a positive, feel-good experience about the kind of church they choose. They're not so concerned about learning anything or being delivered from their formal sinful passions and desires. Their goal is the experiencing experience, and, and nothing really changes at all because their heart has not been changed and the Holy Spirit 
does not live in them. Then there is another kind of person who becomes attracted to Christianity because it has a certain intellectual attraction to it. They find that the Bible and theology very interesting, and they take it up like someone would take up a hobby. Just like someone who is interested in music or someone who's interested in some kind of genre of art, this becomes their hobby and interest, and they think of the Christian life as an intellectual pursuit. Their goal becomes intellectual stimulation. Nothing really changes, though, because their heart has not been changed and the Holy Spirit does not live in them. Still, there are others who see Christianity and the church as a place that hopefully they can be fixed. This is a big one today. It's merely the pragmatic approach to Christianity. So they are attracted to teaching on the 10 ways to have a better marriage, the 12 steps to overcoming addiction, the five things to implement for financial success and freedom, and so on and so forth. So they think Christianity is a thing to try. You hear people say all the time, I tried that. I tried Christianity. It didn't work for me. It may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. That is definitely the pragmatic approach. They are looking for help in whatever ails them, that the church is a place that they can find a solution to most, if not all, their problems. And when they find that some of their problems become worse, well, they jettison Christianity and the church, and they conclude and exclaim, well, I tried the church, and it did not work for me, and they move on to something else. You see, their goal was to have their problems fixed, and in the end, nothing really changed because their heart has not been changed and the Holy Spirit does not live in them. Further, there are those who grew up in the church, and some, not all, they view Christianity as something they have to do because they were afraid to do anything else. But the Christian life to them is really something that is a burden to them because it hinders them from what they really want to pursue in their heart. In other words, they have a lot of passions and desires unfulfilled in their heart, and they feel they cannot live them out because of their view of Christianity. So Christianity is actually something that hinders them from enjoying life and having fun and therefore look at it as just something that they ought to do out of duty and would vary if no, at, no joy at all. Some may view it that way because they know it pleases their parents, but they think, as soon as I can cast off this burden, that's what I'm going to do. They do it and, and are done with it, uh, done with it all, and they live a double lifestyle and go underground with their passions and desires and play the part as long as they can keep up appearances. And the reason why they do that is because uh, they see Christianity to them is a burden 
because their heart remains unchanged and the Holy Spirit does not live in them. So I'm sure there are other ways to describe the church and Christianity from different vantage points, but I would have to conclude that if we even come up with other situations that we have observed and know, they would all be wrong. None of these or others could match the biblical blueprint of what a church is and what a Christian does more than right here in the second chapter of Acts. That these people, these religious people, who heard Peter's message, did not become Christians because they were mere Jews and deserved to be, to be saved. In fact, up to this point, they didn't want to be saved. They're the ones who actually crucified Christ. They didn't want anything that had to do with Christ. Well, that didn't bring it about. They did not become Christians because they were merely good people living a good life. That's not what brings it about. Nor did it come about because they were born of devout, God-fearing parents. That's not why it comes about either. See, something had to happen to them. Something had to take place in them. And that is true for everyone who becomes a Christian, who comes into the church. No matter what happens, we cannot make ourselves Christians. You cannot make yourself a Christian. You don't even get up and decide one day you're going to be a Christian on your own. See, they, here in this text, became Christians when the Holy Spirit of God came in power and brought the truth home to their hearts, convicting them of their sins, especially the truth about Jesus Christ. And once the spotlight of Scripture was turned on by the preaching of the Word of God, Scripture revealed to them not only First, it revealed to them the status, the dignity, and the significance of Jesus Christ. And then it showed them they were sinners. That all the signposts of the Old Testament were pointing to this one person, the Messiah. And it became very clear to them. They became guilty. It shows us in our text. They killed the Messiah. And you know what? If we would have been there, we were part of killing the Messiah too. See, they realized they needed to be saved. How wrong they were about Jesus. And once they saw what Jesus meant... A complete change of heart came to them about the revelance of Jesus of Nazareth. The relevance of Jesus of Nazareth. The Holy Spirit showed them that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and that the world is in a state of sin. And that included them. So they all of a sudden got pulled into the equation. Wait a minute. 
we're not just children of Abraham and we have all the promises given to us and we're automatically in. No, we're out. Even though we had all that revelation, we rejected it and didn't respond to it in the right way. So they saw that and they, of course, then believed. The Holy Spirit showed them that. They turned to him in complete submission, confessed their sin with a childlike faith and received the good news about Jesus Christ. So becoming a Christian means to undergo a complete change, a change in thinking, a change in action, a change in direction. This means that there is nothing more clear and definite in the New Testament than being a Christian. Not only the reality of their conversion do we see here, but also what follows their initial conversion. What what do they do next once they become believers? Do they just go back into their old way of living and just live that way? Or, or is there something new that happens to us, even what, in what we do? So how do we measure up to that description of what it is to be a real Christian? In other words, how do we measure up to these first believers here in this historical account of the establishment of the church? That the gospel brought salvation, and those who received Jesus Christ and that salvation were brought into the church, were added to the church. Those whose hearts have been changed and the Holy Spirit now lives in them. Now I say all that for this reason. Because when you become a believer, everything changes. If you have not experienced that everything changes in your Christian life, then maybe nothing's changed. Maybe you never believed. You thought you did, but there's not been a change. There's not been a, a radical move to what the Scriptures tell us about what a real believer is. So in, in other words, in Acts chapter 2, we see that the first characteristic of real Christians is that real Christians experience a change in position and a change from where they were to where they were were put by God. You are called from a position of being unsaved, no matter where you were born, when you were born, in what family you were born, in what country you were born, At what time you were born, you were born unsaved. And so therefore, you, everyone, needs to be taken from a position of being unsaved to a position of being saved and knowing it. And what are they saved from? Well, if you look at verse number 40, it says, And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, why did he say that? He's saying to them, listen, your generation and the generations before you got it wrong. If you continue in the current thinking of your generation in which you live, it will lead you to destruction. 
So the call is to be saved from its clutches to something else. The word actually perverse is the Greek word scolios, scoliosis. We hear people say that they have scoliosis. By definition, it means an excessive sideways curvature of the spine. Quite literally, it means crooked. If applied to that generation or our generation, it is used to mean the age or time period in which you live is a time period of being crooked, unscrupulous, dishonest, especially in regards to the truth. Definite article, the truth. Especially the truth about God's only means of salvation in and through Jesus Christ. Our generation, for the most part, denies that human nature is sinful. Our generation denies the sinfulness of sin. That is, it doesn't stain people with filth or blacken them with guilt or condemn them. That our generation stresses the goodness of the human nature. That sin is a slight, a slight thing in the sight of God. Or just maybe just a mere mistake. This generation in which we live is crooked, though, in regards to truth. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can already you already know that, right? You look at the world and you say, Man, it just don't they see this? Don't they see what they're doing? or what they're saying, or where they're going? No, they don't. Why? Because they're blind, right? They're deaf, and they're dead. So why would I expect our generation and the people who lead that generation or influence that generation to lead me in any direction that has to do with what God says in the Word of God? I I shouldn't even expect that. We shouldn't expect that as a church. If you look quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, the scriptures have already informed us in this verse that the generations cannot come to know God by their own wisdom. For it says in this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, it says, For since the wisdom of God, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So this thing that we're doing up here, that I'm doing up here, that other preachers are doing, the world looks at us and they say, that's a bunch of foolishness. That's a bunch of malarkey. You know, and, and they, they just write people off who are just telling what the real truth is. Well, the Bible says that, listen, the world by its own wisdom will never come to know God. They can study all the philosophy, they can study all the theology, and then until God actually saves them, changes their heart, puts his spirit in them, they're going to be led by a crooked and a perverse generation. And it's going to lead them... Maybe with the signs pointing to heaven, but it's going to to be to destruction. It has been the goal of the non-Christian West to seek as 
a worthy goal, the avoiding of any pain, and the or on the other side, the frantic pursuit of pleasure and happiness. This has surfaced in our society in so many disturbing ways from sexual morals that continue to deteriorate, that people are in debt up to their eyeballs because because, uh, they have to have what everybody else has. And of course, there has been a rise of what they call relativism, emotionalism, presentism, victimism, and moralism. For example, relativism. Relativism really is that a person will live by no absolute standard for life, that each person determines what is right for themselves without anybody deciding for them. And, of course, they have the right to change their situation if they think they need to. Now, of course, that produces fruit like there's no consistency in their life or conviction in their heart. There's usually no internal restraint towards anything that their passions and desires want to do. They are they dislike rules or people telling them anything that has to do with right and wrong. It's just it's just a relative relative thing to them. And then of course there is also a lot of emotionalism in our culture, feelings Another, uh, somebody who's uh, steeped in this type of philosophy, feelings are the most uh, important indicator to what is right and best for them. Feelings as a personal guidance system to their life. Well, there's also presentism. That's focused on the present. Living for the moment. It's a focus on personal happiness, uh, no sense of delayed gratification or investment. I got to have it now mentality. That's that's what is going on in that. And of course, there's no focus on any kind of long term investment. You really don't. You're not concerned so much about dying and going somewhere. Uh, and then, of course, there's no sense of consequences. Uh, everything is really an impulsive decision. And then, of course, there's a big philosophy of victimism in our country today. There's no sense of personal responsibility for actions. Belief that I'm what I, uh, what my experience has made me to be. And, of course, my defects are the result of others and situations outside of my control. Of course, the fruit of that would be a regular pattern of blame-shifting. Uh, and uh, excusing uh, and rationalizing bad behavior, a lack of confession, and, of course, a lack of sense of the need for personal change. Now, this has been a consistent, there has been a consistent rise of the indulgence of self-interest, which has led to other types of isms, like materialism, individualism, and Autonomy, where a person, autonomy would be that there's no sense of innate natural responsibility to any higher authority other than self. There's no functional recognition of the existence of God. And so 
a person who lives like that or thinks like that, there's a tendency toward rebellion to authority. There's really no Godward focus in life. And of course, authority and correction is seen as a negative. They therefore live a lawless life. Now, I'm saying all this for this reason. This is the crookedness and the perverseness of our generation. And there's many more of them. Of course, moralism is a big one. You know, just teach people to be good people. Because they're already good, you just have to help them be better. Well, that's not salvation. That's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about being converted. See, I'm saying to you that there is a real change that happens when you become a believer. And that change will be experienced by you. The epistle of 1 John put it something like this. The truth is not in them. He said, when the truth is not in us, we are not by any means empty, but are full of fictions and fables and myths and self-made fantasies and notions that are not so. A lot of things happening today right before our eyes that are things that are not so, and yet people are banking on they are so. See, that's the crookedness of our generation, and it's heading right to hell. And if you're in the flow of that crookedness, that's where you're heading, no matter where you are on the spectrum. In other words, we live in a generation that is still in their sins, stained by its filth, blackened by its guilt, and in turn they remain unforgiven and uncleansed, and yet they think they are doing just fine. The only remedy for your crooked and condemned condition is Jesus' sacrificial death, and still people either ignore that misunderstand that, laugh at that, or scorn this truth. And if the world system of belief does not know God, it cannot know God, and the reason why is because the idea of the world in Scripture has two things going on. Mankind in rebellion against God or hostile to God, and also mankind in his own way of life, especially as opposed to the purpose of God. The world system, it involves the world's values and pleasures and pastimes. So people who are in rebellion to God do not know him, nor do they regard him or follow him, as 1 John tells us in chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God, and such we are for this reason The world does not know us because it did not know him. And that's always where the world's at. That's always where the generation is at. According to Scripture, the world system is said to be under the control of the evil one. It lies in darkness, and it's under divine judgment. So in any case, the believer, the saved person, is not to set their affections on this system, nor its values, nor its pleasures, pastimes, its entertainment, or its ambitions. A real Christian is saved from being swept along 
by the ungodly currents of their generation. And instead, we display before the world the effects of what God is doing in us and upon us and producing in us a complete change. So so when a a believer is put up against even your old self when you were in the world, you have to see a difference. You have to see a change. Because that is exactly what the Word of God and the Spirit of God is doing on you and I. In fact, Philippians, Paul tells and teaches in the Philippian church in chapter 2, verse 15, this is what he says to them. He says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So now, you and I, God doesn't take us to heaven right away when we we first become Christians. He leaves us here, right? And he leaves us here to do what? To be lights in the world. To live right in the middle of a crooked and perverse world in a way where we can, as it says in the same passage, among whom you appear as lights in the world, that you're holding for them the truth on how they can be right with their creator, how they can be right with God. So when we look at Acts chapter 2, we see that there is a change in position from where they were before in this religious condition as Jews to now being, it says here in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were saved now. They were saved not only from their, the condemnation of, or, or the perverse generation, but they were also saved from their present condemned condition. Right? They were moved out of condemnation and the wrath of God into favor with God. It says they are favor with God. They're, pra- they're genuinely, for the first time, praising God. And they're having favor with the people. Because now they're moved into this new position. They have this new change of mind and change of heart. And now they see Jesus Christ as they ought to. And now everything everything from that day forward begins to change in their life. So they're saved from their present condition, condemned condition. And according to Scripture, we all are born into this world under condemnation. In this condition, we remain in danger of of eternal destruction. We remain lost. We have all sinned against God. The law of God has pronounced all guilty. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, and whoever you are, uh, everybody's under that condemnation. In fact, that's what it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already. The judgment of God is already upon everyone. And why? Because they have not believed in the only begotten Son of God. So we are all, we were all under condemnation. The law, of course, until, and the law kept us there until we believed, until we came to trust Christ as our Lord and Savior. And when we believe at that point, of conversion, we are no longer under condemnation. 
We are no longer in the flow of the generation that is taking us nowhere. Like it says in Romans 8, chapter 1, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. Now you're in Christ. So here's the real thing. A Christian can stand and declare, I have been saved. My whole position has changed from one of not being saved to one of being saved, from one of being condemned to one of being free from God's condemnation. In other words, we are moved from one place to another place, one place of not being a Christian to another place of being a a real, genuine, biblical Christian. And that's a good place to be. And that's where we all want to be. And I say all this for this reason, because there's a lot of places where people think they're Christians and they are not Christians. They are deceived. They've deceived themselves. The generation has deceived them, and many times the church does not clearly present to them the warning that they really need to look at their, their being chosen by God if it's real, if they're a really a real Christian. You don't want to be in that place. You want to be in a place where you know you are. Now, here's a passage of Scripture that all of you, all of you I know have heard before. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 17, it informs us as a conclusion to what he was teaching in this passage, the Apostle Paul, It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, that has to mean something. And that has to mean something to everyone who's calling themselves a Christian. See, The question is, are you a real Christian, and are you a new creature, and have all things become new? This is an important shift of stance, a change in sphere, because the apostle here is viewing all people either in Adam or in Christ. In other words, all who are in Christ are a new creation, and all who are in Adam are still linked to the old things. The old things being the old Adamic nature with its old corruption, its old habits, its old sinful being with all its all the slavery that goes with that. So, you know, so people can't say that Hey, I can I can live this sinful lifestyle and I'm just calling myself a Christian also. Can't do that. Not according to scripture. So so our generation will feed that kind of thinking. Right? And and a lot of times people are going along in their bad lifestyle and bad behavior and thinking at the same time and getting up and going to church every Sunday. Because they have 
not looked at the Word of God and realized, no, there is a difference when you become a real believer that all things have become new, that those who are now associated with Christ, who are in Christ, find themselves in a new position and a new sphere. And the phrase new creature in this verse points us right back to Genesis in which we are reminded of what God did when he created the world. It is not simply patching up the old, but he is creating a new. The old things are discarded. The old things are, in other words, they pass away. It means they are cast aside as no longer being a part of us Old things do not become new at conversion. They are discarded. Other things take their place as newly created. That's what happens. And the term here, behold, indicates it's a surprising thing. It's surprising when you become a new believer. It's surprising that all of a sudden you pick up the Bible and you begin to understand it. It's surprising that I now will have a hunger for God's Word that I never had before. Just like a new baby when they're first born, the first, nobody said it to them, okay, now you have to eat, you have to, you have to drink milk from the bottle of your mother's breast. Nobody taught the baby that. The baby, ought, if you don't feed that baby, they're going to scream, scream bloody murder until they get what they want. That's how it should be for a new believer in the Word of God, that they have to have the truth. They cannot stay away from the truth. They must have it. And, and as Peter taught us, that that desire for the milk of the word should always be there. And when it's not there, look for sin. Because sin has robbed you of that desire. See, I'm saying all these things because we become new. And when we become new, that doesn't mean everything's going to be fine, well, and dandy. It may mean when you become a Christian, things are not going to be fine, well, and dandy. And it could have been that when you were a non-believer, they were fine, well, and dandy. Because when you become a Christian, there's a cost. New things, new life, new work, new destination, a new heart, new desires, a new standing is brought about by God, God's doing. You didn't do any of it. God did all of that. And when these changes take place, there will be at least three general manifestations that will really will take place for a real Christian. The first general man- manifestation is uh, of the transfer and the change is that a real Christian, real Christians are removed from the place where they were without the life of God in their soul to now having the life of God in their soul. The life of God is in their soul. The Spirit of God now indwells them. And if you have the life of God in your soul, and your friends and your family members do not have the life of God in their soul, well, there's a problem. There is a clear distinction between the two. There's a noticeable disparity between them. That is why coming to Christ may sever some of your closest human relationships. 
your family, your friends, even your children and spouses, there is a strong, there is strong scriptural language given by Jesus himself to show that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a nice, kind, and friendly message, but it is fundamentally a strong message. It is a radical message. It is ripping you out of the kingdom of darkness and putting you in the kingdom of light. And don't think that everything's just going to go smooth. It's not. And he warned us of this. And that's always the cost. That the change that's going to take place, not all of it is positive, at least from a human perspective. Some of it's going to be quite negative. And, of course, when the negative things take place, that's where you say, ah, I didn't sign up for that. I'm out of here. You know? You become like Josh Harris, who just recently renounced the faith. Writes all these books, pastors at big church, and says, I'm out of here like Vladimir. I don't, I don't believe it. Well, you know what? He was never in the faith. Because a real Christian does not renounce the faith. But a real Christian does struggle in the faith. And it is a struggle, and it always will be a struggle. In fact, if you take your Bibles, just look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 to 38. It says in verse number 32 of Matthew 10, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The Lord is making that comparison between your love for Christ has to outshine all the love that you have for anything else. It must be paramount. Why? Because you're new. Because you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Because he's giving you a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit of God. Now you have the Word of God to teach you. And everything from that day forward is becoming new. So see, in other words, you can't go back. There's nothing to go back to. You have to go forward. You have to keep going. Right? No matter how much of the struggle it is to be a Christian, and it may get worse today. It may get worse. You just keep going. Because you know why? This is not the end. You are heading somewhere. You're going to go into the presence of God. If you look right there in Matthew chapter 10, look up to verse number 21 and 22. It says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. 
And who will, who will endure to the end? Those who are real believers. Those who the Spirit of God indwells and the Spirit of God seals us until the day of redemption. He, he holds us. We're, we're held in the hand of God in Christ in security for that day of redemption. It was John MacArthur who said, it is not easy, talking about the Christian life, it is not user-friendly or seeker-sensitive. It is not a rosy, perfect world where Jesus gives you whatever you want. It is hard. And then he also said, becoming a Christian means being sick of your sin, longing for forgiveness and rescue from present evil and future hell, affirming your commitment to the Lordship of Christ to the point where you are willing to forsake everything for Christ. So we can't tamper with the gospel. We can't make it less offensive. We can't organize church for the unsaved. Church is for the saved. To go out to the unsaved and tell them the message of the gospel. And the church is to keep the unity. That's our job. We are to love one another and that love against the black backdrop of the world will be so profound, it gets their attention. And of course, that love comes from, of course, the two great commandments, to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourself, including those who are in the body. So changing the message is useless, since no one can believe unless God grants them understanding. Johnny Mac also said, if they don't hear the truth, cool music won't help. If they don't see the light, PowerPoint won't help. If they don't like the message, drama and video won't, won't help. See, the problem is their heart. Not the seed of the Word of God. There's nothing wrong with the message from Scripture they're blinded, they're deaf, and they're dead. So they need God's Spirit to make them alive. So why is it that those closest to you, you may lose closeness with? Well, they're still trying to organize their life without God. They're still in darkness. They do not have the life of God in their soul. They do not have a changed heart and the Spirit of God living in them. So, in other words, you're going in the opposite direction, even to those who are closest to you. You know, And if you've been a Christian, you have experienced that in your family. Boom, you're the first-generation Christian. You become, you trust in Christ, and it's an earthquake in your family. Oh, he's, you know, they, he's gone off the deep end. He's, you know, he needs mental help. Or he, she needs mental help. You know, he's, they've gone into a cult, you know, the whole thing, the whole scenario, it goes on. And then all of a sudden years go by and you're still walking with the Lord, still growing in the Lord, still witnessing to them. And years go by and years go by and they haven't changed, but you have changed a lot and they see it. And then they, they really don't necessarily get in your face anymore. They just kind of accept it. I guess that's what they want and that's good for them. That's good for them. Right? But you keep witnessing. You keep telling them. You keep sharing the gospel with them. That happened in my own family. It came from a Polish Catholic family. 
My father had 10 brothers and sisters. He was the 10th of all those. And when I became a Christian, the first one in my family, on both sides, my mother's side and my father's side, it was an earthquake. What? You know, my, my uncle would be beat red talking to me because of his hatred of what I was doing. And, um, you know, and my father's family was against my father because I was his son for years, and I kept witnessing and witnessing and witnessing and witnessing and witnessing. And, of course, some of you know that 25 years went by, and uh, he came to know Christ. And he lived his last eight and a half years for the Lord. But you know what? I didn't do anything. I just, I just kept my head above water, spiritually kept sharing with him the word of God and putting things in his Bible. I bought him like five Bibles, you know. Okay, that Bible don't work. This Bible may work. You know, he spoke, he spoke and wrote Polish, so I gave him a Polish Bible too. He didn't like that so much. But finally, he, I just kept putting things in pointers and tracks in places and underlying things, and he would read them. And, you know, and he, he would tell me that I can argue with you all day, but I can't argue with, with this. I can't argue with this. And he saw it in his own Catholic Bible, and it, was, it blew him away. It's always been there. Why didn't anybody tell me? Why didn't anybody tell me? That was his, his big thing. We get very upset about that. But he came to know the truth, and the truth set him free, and he was different. He was different. He wasn't the same person. Matter of fact, the last eight and a half years, my relationship with my father was the best ever. We always seemed never to connect, you know. Teen years, it was like this, you know. We never really got like that. When when he saw what I saw in Scripture, it became like this. That was really great, and it was only the gospel who did it. And and so, I thank the Lord that the gospel is powerful, and it can do something you can't do. You can't save people. I know you want people to get saved. You can't save them. I can't save them. But I can pray that they get saved. And that's what we're supposed to do. I can pray that the God who can do anything could save that person. My mother, my father, my sister, my brother, my neighbor. You know, some person who's moved at the end of my block who's completely different than anything I know about America. God can save them. God can save people coming to this country that we don't have to go there. He's brought them here. See, we have to be thinking like that. We have to be seeking God's face in that way because that new change is going to bring us, that change in position is going to change our priorities too. And that's what I'm going to look at next week. But I want you to turn back to the book of Acts. And I want you to look at where I'm heading with all this. Because when you become a believer, there's a legal difference that takes place. There's a relational difference that takes place. There's a lordship difference that takes takes place. You're you're not Satan is no longer your lord. You, you didn't know he was, but he was. Christ is your lord. There's also a doctrinal difference. Common areas of belief are not the same anymore. And, of course, there is a religious difference. So there is a 
another manifestation of this transfer and change, and that is that a real Christian is removed from the world in which they freely flowed in all, with all its currents and are put in the realm of the church, which becomes central in their lives. So, this radical change brings us into this new realm. It brings us out of the realm that we, are, we belong to before, the world and its system, and we cannot go back. So if we cannot go back, there's only two places we can go. Either we go to heaven to be with Christ, or we go and become connected to Christ's church while we're here on earth. Those are the two places we go when there's this change. So this general manifestation of, of, of this transfer and change is that they Christians are joined to the church and they continue in the church. The centrality of Christianity becomes a controlling factor in their lives. Someone who becomes a real Christian cannot say the church is something I can take or leave. No, when they were saved, they were added to the church. When you're saved, you're added to Christ's church. It's not something you take or leave. It is essential in the means of grace for you and I to be gathering together. If you look in verse 42, now these 3,000 people were saved by the Holy Spirit, had, had come together forming the church, and notice what it says in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What was going on there? There's no, can't go back to Judaism. Got to go into the church or go home. That's it. And when they came into the church, what did they do? They became study buddies together. What? The Apostles' Doctrine. They had something new to learn. They shared spiritually and emotionally together. What? Fellowship. They worshiped God together. That's the breaking of bread. They were prayer partners together. That's the corporate prayers where people meet together to pray. They were generous together. They sold their possessions, and when they saw a need, they met the need. They shared meal and time together. They gladly gathered together. Christians, of course, can't keep away from each other. 
And when you're away from Christians, you kind of starve a little bit. It's like cutting a branch off from the tree, and they move you away a little bit, and they connect you back up when you get together with believers again. They were free to praise God and were unified in diversity together. Believe me, if you go back to the first chapter of Acts, these people are not people that hung out together. They were so incredibly different culturally, language-wise, and otherwise, there was no way they were going to get together. But God saves people, and he removes, he doesn't remove the diversity, but he, in that diversity, he brings unity by his spirit and his word, right? And that's why we can go anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter what person, where a person was born, what culture they're in. If they know Christ, there is this connection that we have with them because they know the Savior. They love the Lord. And so here that their priorities have changed, Jew and Gentile, bond and free, rich and poor, pagan and barbarian, people with red skin and yellow skin and black skin and white skin, people who are lost in darkness, in bondage to sin, alienated from the life of God and under his wrath, people who are in desperate need of the word of God, they were being saved and added to the church. And that's what the church is about. The church is about unity amongst diversity that God does. This is no book that you pick up and read, or nobody can teach some seminar on it, on how to have you know, diversity training in the workplace, right? No, God does it, because he changes our heart, and he gives us the spirit of God, and we become one in Christ, and we're all heading in the same direction. See, that's what the world needs but the church better have it or we're doing something wrong. See, it's, it's far different these days. Today we think of the church in terms of how many people attend or how many programs are offered or how much money is raised. Today's size, money, facilities, influence, prominence is celebrated even when many of so-called churches do not demonstrate a submission to the authority of the Word of God or a confidence in the sufficiency of the Word of God. The real evidence of, of a growing church is the Word of God increases in the people's hearts and lives. The Word of God increases, and the desire for the Word increases, and people become Christians, and they continue in that priority the rest of their life that they hold on to God's means of grace, the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. That's what the church was given by God, and that's what we still have today, is we are to keep those things and grow in those things. And in doing that, we get something done. So a Christian is taken from a sphere to a new sphere of becoming a real believer, and then their priorities change because God, through his spirit and his word, changes your priorities. Your direction is different. You know where you're going, right? You know where you're going. So that's what we're going to be looking at next week. So this morning, uh, I'd wanted to challenge you, especially in the way of when you become a Christian, you are completely different. And God has done that. 
and he's given you new desires and a new way of living life and thinking apart from a perverse, crooked generation that could never bring you there. Only God could. So this morning I do want to remind you that we are we have our Lord's table, and, and remember that's part of, of what is included in, in Acts chapter 2 is that they met together not only to eat meals together, but to have the Lord's table. Uh, the centrality of the Lord's table is, is what we cannot forget, that Christ came into the world, right? He died in the place of sinners. He bodily came into the world, as was prophesied, and fulfilled that prophecy by actually doing it and he died for what one reason, not only to live a perfect life and to obey the Father completely, but to die on a cross, to submit himself to death on the cross, right? Unrobed himself of his glory so he can die as a man. For himself, no, for us. And then he finally shed his blood that, that the blood of, of Christ could wash away anything that brought condemnation and guilt in our life and freed us to have a clean, clean slate before God that's been given to us by Christ. The Lord takes our sin, nails it to the cross, and he gives us Christ's righteousness. That is really what is entailed in the Lord's Supper. So remember, the Lord's Supper is a memorial feast that we eat the bread and we drink the cup uh, as Christ told us in remembrance of him. And as we do that, uh, why is that important? Because the Lord says to do it, and we're to obey the Lord. And, of course, this feast also is designed to, uh, in, his, in God's infinite wisdom, to have several very beneficial effects on the believer. The first one is examining yourself. Uh, you know, sh- to practice the Lord's table is, is to also to look at yourself. And, and see how you've been growing. How is the light of the Word of God shining in your heart? How is it producing fruit? And if there is sin there, and believe me, Christians can see sin uh, as you grow in Christ more than ever, uh, repent, turn from that sin. And so regular periods of self-examination and confession are needed for spiritual health, but don't stay there. Don't just keep looking at your sin and, or, or being so introspective that you kill, you kill yourself no, Christ has already taken care of that. Confess it. He's already known you've done it. Bring it to him. Let him cleanse you of all your sin and unrighteousness and go on in your Christian walk. And of course, through this ordinance, you believe it or not, we come together to preach the gospel. It tells us in the scripture, this is our way to preach the gospel, is that we're take, partaking of this, these elements. And of course, the Lord also uh, brings to our minds vividly the sufferings of Christ on our behalf, and of course the blood that was shed. And these are the basic truths from which our minds and hearts may stray during the month, because we have it once a month. And so it kind of reels us back to reality, to a spiritual perspective on things, and, uh, and brings us into walking with the Lord once again. So as we eat and drink in remembrance of him, and we discern the body. Uh, of course, the symbol in the bread and the cup, and our love for Christ that should be stimulated in our love for one another. The Lord said that we're to keep this until he comes. 
Keep doing this until I come. Don't let this practice go by the wayside. All right, so we, we're, we're, our minds are brought into the reality that Christ is coming again. Live that way every day. Wake up that way thinking of that. He's coming every day. How are you living that day? What are you doing that day? What are you doing in your heart and life? What are you thinking? If he comes today, be ready for him to come any day, any moment. There's always that imminency in his return. It helps us. It purifies our walk. It causes us to, to the reality of what's happening. So, again, as we look back to Calvary, the cross, we rejoice that on that cross our redemption was taken care of. We were made free. We were set free by the sacrifice of Christ, forgiven completely. And of course, as we look forward, we're, we are looking uh, for his coming and we're rejoicing. At least we should be rejoicing in the prospect of seeing Christ face to face, right? When you love a person, you want to see them, right? Long distance, even, even uh, what is it, FaceTime. Even FaceTime is, doesn't give you the full sense of having the person present with you. So we're looking to be in Christ's presence, to see him as he is, right? That's going to be the day of, of complete rejoicing. So let's take a few minutes. Let's uh, look at ourselves, our lives. 